Jesus is mad. He is incensed in our text this morning from from John chapter 2. He's come to Jerusalem. It's Passover, this Jewish holiday. He's gone into the temple courts, and there he finds people, tables set up exchanging money. You know, a lot of people came from far and wide. They made the pilgrimage to the holy city of Jerusalem. They needed to get their money exchanged so that they could buy an animal in order to sacrifice. And those were for sale too in the temple courts. Sheep, oxen, pigeons. When Jesus sees this scene, all these animals being sold for sacrifice, all all of this money exchange going on, he becomes as irate, as angry as we see him in the Gospels. And John tells us that he makes for himself a whip of cords and he begins driving the people and the animals out of the temple courts. This place here in Jerusalem where people would come to worship God. He drives them out. He comes through. He dumps out all of the coins that had been exchanged. He turns over the tables. And he says, you people get out of here. Because you have, what does John tell us? He says, you have made my father's house a house of trade. How dare you? Get out. And the Jews who are standing there, they say, Jesus, if you're going to act like that, we're going to need a sign from you, okay? I mean, if if you're going to come in here and tell us what to do, if you're going to pretend to be God, we need you to perform some type of sign to, to show to us that, you know, you are allowed to say these things. And Jesus says to them, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will will raise it up. And they say, it took 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up after three days? Jesus, it took a long time to build this temple. You think you can rebuild this grand edifice, this place of worship, in just three days? But Jesus, he wasn't talking about the physical temple. He was talking about something else entirely. This is more about Jesus. Our our current sermon series. This is the second installment. We're talking over the next several weeks about who Jesus really is and why it matters. We, our goal is to understand Jesus better so that we can come to love Him more and then be more devoted to His will. I don't know about you, but I love a good mystery novel uh, or maybe a movie with a twist ending. And if you're like me, you you know the experience of reaching the end of a book or movie when the solution to the mystery is revealed and you immediately want to go back and read it over again or watch it over again because you know how it ends and you want to watch it over again with the end in mind. I'm thinking about a movie called The Sixth Sense that came out many years ago. And I think it came out in 1999, so, you know, the expiration date on spoiler alerts has ended. 
I should just spoil the end of this movie for you, but you know what? Maybe there are some people who, after 20 years, still haven't seen it and would like to see it, so I'm not going to do that. But there is a twist, the twist to end all twists, at the end of that movie. And when I found it out, I wanted to start it over immediately and watch it from the beginning to... Because I knew, I knew something big that I didn't know before as it played out the first time. In many ways, the Old Testament is a mystery to which Jesus is the solution. It's unclear in the Old Testament, but when Jesus comes along, it becomes crystal clear. Only when Jesus comes on the scene do all the hazy components of the story come into focus. Because of Jesus, it all suddenly makes sense. The purpose of this sermon series, more about Jesus, is to discover how Jesus makes all the mysterious pieces of the Old Testament fit together into a picture that only God could have dreamed up. So let's carry on. Have you ever felt alone? Maybe this morning, you feel alone. And maybe you say, how could I possibly feel alone in a crowd of, you know, 350, 400 people, however many there are? You know, we are the church. We've come together. These are my friends. These are my brothers and sisters. We experience warm and intimate fellowship with one another. All those things are true, but maybe you're thinking, you know what? I still feel alone. It is just as possible to feel alone in a crowd as it is to feel alone in solitude. And you may have some wonderful relationships in your life, close friends, a spouse, your parents, your kids, and yet you still sometimes feel alone. Feeling alone is a universal human experience. We all long for the presence of others in our life. And some of you are like, no, I'm good. (laughs) I'm good being by myself. I like my alone time. Some of us like our alone time more than others, but all of us need, some of us might like more relationships than others, but all of us long for, we desperately seek to be known by someone else, to be in a relationship. We long for connection. We're desperate for relationship, for intimacy. I read recently about a man in South America. His name is Amadeo Garcia. And when Amadeo's brother Juan died in 1999, he became the only person on the face of the earth to speak the language of his tribe. The only one left. There was a time not long before that where thousands of people knew this language, this language of his tribe called Tashiro. But as this tribe receded deeper and deeper into the Amazon basin, the numbers began to dwindle, the people began to die off until he was the only one left. Wild animals and, and accidents and especially disease decimated his tribe. And suddenly, he's the only one who knows the language of his people. When his brother passed away, there was a Christian missionary there with Amadeo. 
And later this missionary commented on how quiet he was, how strange it was that he was so quiet. And this missionary asked Amadeo, how do you feel? And he said simply, it is over for us. And he said those words in broken Spanish. The only way he would be able to communicate with the world from this moment on. Because no one any longer knew his language. Now we can scarcely imagine what it's like to be in Amadeo's shoes. But I dare say we can somewhat relate to how he feels. Because sometimes we feel like this too. No one understands me. No one really knows me. Yes, I've been married to my spouse for 50 years. Yes, my kids are grown now. Yes, I have wonderful friends. I have bared my heart to them. But there are parts of me that people still don't know. They still don't understand. Nobody speaks my language. I feel alone. As with all basic human desires and wants, there is a theological reason that we feel alone. And we as God's people, as as Christians, we've got to start training ourselves to think in these terms. When we face significant innate problems, needs, and desires within ourselves, we've got to think, we've got to seek a theological answer to those, not a worldly answer. Our desire for relationship, for connection, is at its core a desire for God. A desire for God. In the garden, when man and woman was, when humanity was first created, we experienced the presence of God. There is a remarkable verse in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, that describes how Adam and Eve experienced the presence of God at the beginning of time. The Genesis writer says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. What was that like? To experience the presence of God in such a tangible way. To share that type of intimate relationship with God. That's what we were made for. We were wired to share that type of relationship with Him. But as you know, in the fall, we lost that intimacy. We read just a few verses later, a few tragic verses later, that the Lord God sent him along with Eve out from the Garden of Eden, out from this perfect place where they were made to dwell in perfect relationship with God in order to work the ground from which he was taken. Go out from this special place. And we know from the New Testament that our sin, our rebellion, their rebellion against God, their insistence that we want to do things our way and not God's way. We don't want to be dependent on on God. We want to live independent from God. Our sin alienates us from God. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 12. We have been cut off from God. Some other language in Ephesians. Separated. Strangers. This is not language of relationship. This is not language of God's presence. It is language of distance, of separation. And we feel the absence in our bones, do we not? We feel it at the core of who we are. In the movie Castaway that came out nearly 20 years ago, Tom Hanks plays a FedEx employee from Memphis named Chuck Nolan. 
And on a FedEx flight to Malaysia, Chuck's plane travels through a violent storm and crashes into the Pacific Ocean. He escapes the sinking plane and is saved by an inflatable life raft. He clings to the raft. He loses consciousness. He floats all night before washing up on an island. When he finally wakes up, he goes exploring. He discovers that the island is uninhabited. And he also discovers that he is the only survivor of the crash. He is alone. Soon, several FedEx packages from the plane begin to wash up on shore. And one of them contains a Wilson volleyball. And over time, this volleyball, I know this sounds strange, there's Wilson. This volleyball becomes Chuck's sole companion. He draws a face on it, actually out of his own blood, because he cuts his hand severely, and he takes the ball and throws it, and then he draws a face on it. He has conversations with it. He even argues with it. Some people, you're thinking, he's batty, he's crazy. Well, what would you do if you were on an island all by yourself? Wilson becomes his only friend. Toward the end of the movie, after Chuck has been on the island for several years, he launches out on a handmade raft with Wilson by his side. He floats along on the ocean for many days. Well, one night, a storm comes along and nearly tears his life raft apart. The next day, he's asleep and he's awoken by some spray from the ocean. And he notices that Wilson has become untethered from the raft and he's floating away. He sees him. He yells for him. He tries to rescue him. He's he's weakened from being out on the ocean. He jumps out of the boat and begins to swim, but he soon discovers he's going to drown because he's too weak. So he goes back to the raft and he grabs a rope and he begins to make his way towards Wilson again. But he lets go of the rope and he has to make a decision. Either I go for Wilson and I die or I go back to the raft and I live. And he swims back to the raft Wilson is much too far away for him to safely retrieve him. And he begins to yell, Wilson, I'm so sorry, Wilson. Have you ever cried over a volleyball? I did when I saw Castaway. And you might have too when you saw Castaway. It's just a volleyball. It was his only friend. And in that moment, we can feel his pain. We can feel his loss. We can feel his loneliness. I agree with the hymn writer when she says, I don't know a thing in the whole wide world that's worse than being alone. And in many ways, the Bible, God's holy scriptures, is the story of God seeking to make His presence known to us again. And that's what the temple is all about. The temple that we read about in the Old Testament and the New is the dwelling place of God. A very special place where God makes His presence known. And that's what the tabernacle was about Before God's people came into the promised land, we're talking about that in uh, Joshua when they made conquest of the land. 
Before the temple was built by Solomon, they had this traveling house of God, this tent where God made his presence known among the people. It was the tent of meeting. It was the tabernacle. I think our kids talked about the tabernacle this morning in uh, Bible class. And I also think about the pillars of cloud and fire that led the Israelites by day and night. And I think too about the Ark of the Covenant, which was a tangible symbol of God's presence with the people in the book of Joshua as they are going into the land, as they're marching around the city of Jericho, the ark leads the way. That's the sign of God's presence. And all the other manifestations of God's presence that we read about in the Old Testament, the Bible is about how God wants to make His presence known among His people again. And it's worth noting that God must come down in order to accomplish this. All efforts, all human efforts, To build our way up to God, they are futile, they are foolish. That's one of the things that the Tower of Babel story from the Old Testament, from Genesis chapter 11, illustrates. It is silly, it is stupid to try to build a building into the heavens. All the people come together and they say, let's build a tower up into the sky, into the heavens, to make a name for ourselves. You know what my favorite thing about that story is? The Tower of Babel in Genesis 11? When the writer says that God has to come down in order to see it. Their efforts are so paltry, so lame, God can't even see it from heaven. He's got to come down to look at it. God must come down to make His presence. No. If you think about all of the world religions as a ladder going up, All the world religions are about how we climb rung by rung up the ladder in order to make ourselves worthy before God. Our faith says there's no climbing the ladder up. No, God has come down. He must come down in order to make Himself known to us. But the temple, and this is a reconstruction of the temple that would have stood in Jesus' day, the temple, that's the big way in the Old Testament that, make, that, that makes God's presence known. But let me tell you something. The temple never fully satisfied our need, our desire for God's presence. Not ultimately, not fully, and here's why. The temple didn't contain the fullness of God. It never did. From the time the first temple was dedicated, Solomon acknowledged on that day that they began worshiping in the temple that Hey, the temple can't contain God's presence. And a little bit later, the prophet Isaiah, God speaking through him, says, what is this house, what is this building that you have made for me? You know that there's no way that I can be held within four walls. So the temple didn't contain the fullness of God. Something else, the temple could be destroyed. It was just a building. And in fact, Solomon's temple was destroyed. In 587 B.C. by the Babylonians. And we can hardly overstate the devastation that the people of Israel experienced when the temple, the house of God, was destroyed. Boy, that wrecked their faith. How can we go on without the temple? That was God's house. What are we going to do? Well, soon they began rebuilding the temple in 516 B.C. or so. And the temple that Jesus saw was called the second temple. 
And this era is called Second Temple Judaism, but you know what? That Second Temple was destroyed too, after Jesus' time, in 70 AD, by the Roman Empire. And do you know what now stands on the Temple Mound in Jerusalem? An Islamic shrine called the Dome of the Rock. So the temple could be destroyed. The temple was destroyed. It no longer stands. And here's one more. The temple didn't administer God's presence to all people. That's what it was supposed to do. It was supposed to be a blessing to all who came to worship God. It was not. It was just for the Jews. And that's probably what Jesus got so mad about in John chapter 2. When he goes into the outer courts of the temple where the Gentiles, where the outsiders, where the non-Jews were supposed to be able to gather, they were supposed to be welcome in that place in order to worship God in the outer courts. And you know what they, they had done? They turned it into a marketplace. And they disrupted the worship of those for whom the temple was made. Not just the Jews, but the Gentiles too. Jesus says, get out of here. Look what you've made this special holy place. This is where all people are supposed to be able to gather and to worship God. And you've set up all these tables and brought in all these animals and you're exchanging all these money. You are interrupting the purpose for which the temple was made. So get out. And they say, Jesus, you're going to have to give us a sign. What sign would you provide for acting in such a manner? And Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, it took 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But listen to what John says in his gospel. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. He wasn't talking about this grand edifice, this big building for worship. He was talking about himself. He was talking about his body. He is the new and better temple. And nobody in that moment understood it. Verse 22, when he was raised from the dead, that's when his disciples remembered that he'd said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. When he was raised from the dead, they thought, oh man. You remember what Jesus said when he was in the temple that day, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. He was talking about himself. Mind blown. He was talking about him. He's the temple. Not this building anymore. He is the new and better temple. How? Well, for one, he does contain the fullness of God. According to Paul in Colossians, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus. What the old temple couldn't do, Jesus does perfectly. He contains the fullness of God in the flesh. And he cannot be destroyed. He says, destroy me, and I'll be raised again in three days. I know you're going to try. I know that you will. I know that you will succeed in nailing me to that cross. But try as you might, I will not stay in that grave. I will come back to life. You cannot destroy me. You've torn down this temple once before. You'll do it again. But this temple, you can't lay a finger on. I will not be, I cannot be destroyed. And, maybe most notably, he administers God's presence to everybody who place their faith in him. 
unlike what the temple had become, where all these tables had been set up blocking the worship of outsiders, Jesus says, come to me in faith and you will be saved. I am a savior for everyone. Jesus is the new and better temple. Jesus heals our loneliness. Jesus fulfills our need for God's presence. He is, what does Matthew say? He is Emmanuel. Which means what? God with us. He is God in the flesh. He has come down to make His dwelling among us. Jesus is the new and better temple. But this gets better. Because Jesus, the temple of God, promised that when He goes, when He was on this earth, He said, I'm going to depart from you, but when I go, I will send someone in my place. The Helper, capital H. Or the Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God. And you know what Paul says? Just follow this thread through the Scriptures. It is extraordinary. Jesus is the new and better temple. He claims it for Himself. You know what Paul says? In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, because of the Spirit's presence in the church, we are now the temple of God. Not this building, not these blocks and bricks and pews and beams. You, us, collectively, the church, we are the dwelling place of God. We are the temple. And you know what else? You individually, your body, is the temple of God as a believer because you house the Spirit of God. That's Paul too in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't belong to you anymore. You have surrendered it to God. You are the temple. God Himself is with us in the form of Jesus Christ. And now in the form of His Spirit. Never once have you ever been alone. Not even for a minute. Not even for a second. God is with you. And to be in Christ is to be in a place where no one stands alone. Now, the fact that God is present among us It should be a a reminder to us on several fronts. One is, the fact that God is present among us should give us courage for the task at hand. Because God has called us to seek and save the lost. He has told us to go and make disciples of all nations. And that seems like such a big job. But you know what else He said? I'll be with you. Behold, I am with you even to the end of the age. I am the new temple. And your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And the church is the temple of God. I am with you. I am not calling you to do something where I will not be present with you, empowering you to do it. I'm not sending you off by yourself. I'm not saying, good luck, go for it. You're on your own now. No, until the end of the age, I'll be with you every step of the way. Giving you the strength giving you the courage, giving you the gumption in order to make it happen, in order to preach the gospel and bring people to Jesus. His presence is is cause for courage in our Christian lives. It is also comfort in trial. Are you struggling? Are you suffering? 
Are you a Christian who is grieving, mourning a loss? Struggling with disappointment? God is with you. And He knows how you feel. Jesus knows how you feel. Jesus was here. And He experienced every trial that we face. He is with you in hardship and heartache. His presence abides with you. That ought to bring us comfort when we face difficulties in life. And here's one more. God's presence should also be a challenge for us in temptation. You may think that you can hide your secret temptations and sins from everybody around you, even your spouse, even your closest friends. You can't hide from God. He is with you every step of the way. He sees what you're doing, what you're thinking, what your attitude is. He's with you. And that should challenge us to seek a life that is devoted and obedient and upright and righteous before Him. But here's one that I want to leave with you, and it kind of piggybacks off that. Think about this. God is with you, and as I just said, He knows you. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows every smudge and stain on your soul. He knows every impure, evil thought that you've had. He knows every evil action that you have taken. He knows you from the inside out, intimately. And He still loves you. He still loves you. Do you feel lovable? When you think about, when you really think about all of your mistakes and failings and shortcomings, I don't. I feel dirty. I feel unworthy. I feel unlovable. And yet the New Testament reminds me over and over, God loves you. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. In spite of all that stuff. And the question at the end of the day is, do you love Him? Do you love Him? Do you want to give your life to Him? If you love Him, Jesus says, you'll follow my commands. God loves you so much that He wants to enter into a relationship with you. He wants you to be saved. He wants you to live with Him forever. He's done everything that He can do in order to make that happen. He is waiting on you to take a step of obedient faith. To come and repent of your sins. To confess that Jesus is Lord. To be baptized so that your sins can be washed away. If your life has gone off the rails to the point you need to rededicate yourself to Him. To come before Him and say, I know that you love me. I have not acted in a way that expresses my devotion and gratitude to you. I want my life to belong to you again. You can come. This is also a time for anybody who's struggling with anything. If you're 
just downtrodden or disappointed about something in life, you can come and say, hey, I need prayers. I need my brothers and sisters to surround me in love and encouragement and support. We sing a song every week that invites you to come and respond to the gracious invitation of God. And we're going to do that right now. Why don't you stand as we stand and sing?